Hi, everyone. This is Andy Hagens, host and creator of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Since Jimmy and I started the show in 2021, the show has evolved. Uh, we started doing video, we changed the format, and we just improved over time. So after we hit episode 100, we decided to go back and update those first few episodes for any listeners who are starting from the beginning. So this episode is a replay of my interview with Eric Hayden. Eric is a leader in the private equity real estate space with plenty of insights for investors as well as entrepreneurs. The guy's just a stud and you're going to love this interview. By the way, if you're enjoying the show at all, please take a minute to leave us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. It only takes a few seconds, but it helps spread the word to other investors and other entrepreneurs and it would really mean the world to me. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens. And today we're talking about one of the most dynamic places on planet Earth, economically speaking, that is. That is Silicon Valley, which is arguably the epicenter uh, of the global economy, at least the tech sector of the global economy. So I'm very excited that joining me is Eric Hayden, founder of Urban Catalyst, and also recently named one of Silicon Valley's 100 most powerful people. Eric, welcome to the show. Andy, so glad to be here. So we have a lot to dive into. Uh, we're talking about California, always a great subject, a lot of passionate uh, opinions when we talk about California. But before we even get to Silicon Valley, DSTs, Opportunity Zones, all that stuff, could you give our audience a brief introduction to Urban Catalyst? Sure. Urban Catalyst, we're a real estate equity fund, and we're also real estate experts, which means we buy existing assets, own and manage them. We also do a lot of ground-up development projects and uh, rehabilitations of existing buildings. So- you know, we've kind of covered the Opportunity Zones beat. Jimmy, my part, business partner, and I have, we've covered that. And Urban Catalyst, frankly, for those of us, you know, for those of you listening who aren't already aware, they're one of the most well-known kind of brand names in that Opportunity Zone space. And, you know, Eric, frankly, I think a lot of people in that space look up to you kind of as a, a unofficial leader, not an elected leader, but, you know, there's a couple funds and urban catalyst is definitely one of those that are just very, very well known, you know, big, bold projects that kind of capture the imagination. So what I'm wondering, you you founded this company. How does that even happen? You're a pretty young guy. Like how were you able to found Urban Catalyst? Where did that start? You know, it was it was interesting, right? Um I've been doing ground up development for my entire career. I've done a lot of it in Silicon Valley and even specifically in San Jose, but I've done projects all over the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, when I started Urban Catalyst, I was the president of a development company doing a big project up in Oakland. I also, on the side, had my own business doing some consulting work with other development companies and decided that I wanted to do more. Uh, ground up development, you know, with the type of returns that are associated with it and really the real estate market in Silicon Valley has always made a lot of sense to me. And about the time 2018, when we formed Urban Catalyst, what we saw was really just the light switch turning on in downtown San Jose. 
from a ground up development perspective. And that, that was mainly because of the overall tech migration trends throughout Silicon Valley. You know, if Palo Alto, Menlo Park and Mountain View are kind of the center of the tech universe, they're not really very big cities. So we've seen a lot of expansion. Of course, these you know companies, Google, Apple, uh, Meta, they're expanding all over the country, all over the world. But in the Valley, we've seen the slow migration southward uh, from that center of Silicon Valley towards San Jose. Uh, in between the city of Sunnyvale, development went gangbusters for years in Sunnyvale. Now the city is almost completely built out. And when we saw that happen, it was well, where's the next logical place that these companies will continue to expand? And obviously it's downtown San Jose. Mm-hmm. Now, looking back five years ago, it was a good thought because now we can say that most of those companies have purchased land, opened offices, or have big plans to do a lot of expansion here in San Jose. Uh, we were not the only folks that saw San Jose. A lot of other developers have come into downtown San Jose in the last five years. But we did achieve what we we're trying to do, and that is we built relationships with property owners. A lot of them we already had. Uh, we were able to acquire properties and really get in on the ground floor before this wave of development hit. Now, it's always interesting. You know, we have had a lot of success in the opportunity zone space, uh, especially in our fundraising. You know, we're on a lot of those lists of most funds raised or percentage of market share raised. Uh, we do have really great projects here in downtown, a variety of asset classes, but we're developers at first and foremost. And when we saw downtown San Jose, it wasn't because it was an opportunity zone. It was because mm-hmm. it was the right place to build buildings, to get returns and to improve a city. That's a great city. Um, just so happens that everywhere we wanted to do business was in an opportunity zone. And I thought, well, if we're going to be raising a real estate equity fund to fund these projects, uh, might as well give our investors these additional tax benefits. And so that's really how we started. We wanted to be in San Jose. And San Jose was also an opportunity zone and we became an opportunity zone fund and it's been working out pretty great for us. Yeah, we can go into this a little bit. I know a lot of our audience is already aware of opportunity zones, probably not everyone, but it's it's a real estate investment program that gives a lot of tax benefits. But your point is it wasn't the tail wagging the dog. Like you knew you wanted to do an OZ fund. So you looked for a place you knew you wanted to be in Silicon Valley because of the opportunity there. Um, you might, my question is, as an entrepreneur, you know, people ask me this sometimes. They're like, it's so risky. How do you take that risk? How do you put out your own shingle? How do you start your own business? And I'm like, no, you're looking at it wrong. It's actually really safe to be an entrepreneur. You get to be your own boss. And honestly, I usually try and like before I start a company or whatever, try and tee things up. So it's actually not so risky. I try and reduce that risk. So my question is, did you have projects property lined up before founding the company or or how did you approach that risky startup phase so land acquisition is something i've done a lot i've had the title of vice president land acquisition director of land acquisition so i know how to acquire projects and it's a little harder than it sounds right you think oh you've got to make an offer and close escrow there's no real trick to that It's understanding what the city is going to allow you to build, how much it costs, building out your financial models and doing a sensitivity analysis so that you can back into how much you can pay for it and then doing all of the negotiation. So it doesn't, Eric, even that sounds expensive as heck. So it's like before I even know that this project is viable, you're already investing in a lot of capital just into doing that, right? Yeah. When we first started Urban Catalyst at our sponsor level, we raised around four and a half million dollars. That was just a 
start us up, get the lights on and get everything going. Wow. Uh, and that was mainly friends and family money for me. We didn't use any you know, venture money or uh, large equity groups. It was friends and family money, folks that believed in me, knew my track record, knew I was going to put everything I had into it. And they believed in me and we've already paid them back plus profits. So they're pretty pleased with us. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how we initially got going. And it was expensive. I mean, just negotiating a contract you're talking about, you know, Twenty to thirty thousand dollars in attorneys' fees. Creating a private place memorandum for an opportunity zone fund. Our first one was like three hundred thousand dollars. You know, we had to lease an office space, had to sign a five-year lease. All these things were were, like you said, a little bit scary. But and I'll probably probably also like double the price in California because I'm I'm thinking like Holland, Michigan prices. I'm like, yeah, it's really expensive. And then I'm like, oh man, imagine what that costs when you live in California. Oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, but California, you know, the economy has been strong and what you find is you can do business even with these more expensive prices. But to your point about, you know, is there a lot of risk when you go out and start your own company? The answer is there is because, you know, by percentage, a lot of companies that start fail. Mm -hmm. However, what's the difference between being an employee and being the owner of a business? Uh, you think there's less risk? There isn't the person that you work for as an employee, their business can go out of business and then you're fired. And then what, you're going to go find another job. As long as you start your own business, at least you get to make the choices. At least you're the one that gets to steer the ship. And if you have faith in yourself that you can do that, you can be successful at it. I love that. One other question just about the origins of Urban Catalyst and, you know, that startup phase. What I think is interesting about you, Eric, is that a lot of entrepreneurs, myself included, are like serial entrepreneurs where, you know, you might start one business and sell that and then start another one and exit that, start a third, maybe each one gets a little bigger or whatever. But it sounds like, you you know, you had a consulting company, but you were working for another firm. And then when you founded Urban Catalyst, right away, it's like this huge, big, bold vision. So like right from the get go, you're you're not thinking small and like, let's go hit a single and then go for a home run. Like right from the get go, I have this feeling that you had this big vision and you're just like, I just got to do this. It's kind of true. You know, some folks, when they go out, they start small. And I know a lot of examples of this, especially in our space where there are other uh, fund managers that raise money similar to the way that we do that are involved in alternative assets like real estate where you know, they started off buying one building with a syndicate of five people with a tick. And after they did that 10 times and were successful at it, they went a little bit bigger. Mm-hmm. And over a 20-year period, they built that up. Or you can look at you know one of the largest funds in the world, Blackstone. Uh, their first fund was an $800 million fund. And that's how they started. And now they're almost a trillion under management. Yeah. So it, it, this is very similar when you think of ground up development. Throughout my career, I've built these really big buildings. You know, maybe my average building size has been about $100 million. A lot of folks out there in the world are like, oh, yeah, no, my friend, uh, he flips houses, buys houses, fixes them up and sells them, or he or she. Uh, The amount of work to build a $100 million building or to flip a house is about the same amount of work. There's just some extra zeros attached to the bigger (laughs) buildings. And it's similar at the fund level, raising a $20 million fund and successfully deploying it or raising a $200 million fund or even a $2 billion fund. It's the same amount of work. It's just 
more zeros attached to it. Yeah, that, wow. That hit me like a truck. Even personally speaking, I, I, as an entrepreneur, I just, I know that's true. And a lot of times it's like, you have to think big and ask and it, it, it might surprise you, right? And sometimes, sometimes folks almost take you more seriously with, with that big, bold vision because they're like, wow, you have the confidence that you want to go out and do something big. They're like, well, I, I know you must know what you're doing to even have that confidence to think that big. I, I will tell you, though, you know, the way that we started, especially with our fundraising, was a little bit different than a lot of folks. You know, most of the people that raise money the way that we do, and we're in the retail fundraising space, especially for Opportunity Zone funds, this is very typical where you raise money from individual investors. And that space is dominated by broker dealers and registered investment advisors. A lot of people call them wealth managers. It is a huge space, very dynamic, lots of folks out there that raise money through that channel. It's hard to break into that channel. Mm -hmm. So here we are, Urban Catalyst, you know, day one. We open up shop, we put out our shingle, we called a bunch of those folks and they all said, oh yeah, too much risk, first time fun, you know, we're not going to talk with you. And we thought to ourselves, well, we never even really knew what that space was. We're just going to go raise money, you know, from individuals the way that we always have. And we went out with the new 506C rules under uh, SEC regulations, they're about 10 years old now. Mm -hmm. And we raise money directly from investors. And raising money directly from investors in our first year, we raised $50 million. And we did it through a way that a lot of folks had never tried, which of course is uh, digital marketing, using Google, LinkedIn, Facebook, all that stuff um, to drive investors to our website, investors form fill, and then our investor relations team will call them and talk to them about their situations. So that was a real game changer. We saw a lot of folks after we did that um, kind of follow our example and really come in hard to our space. And I know that especially when I buy Google AdWords, it used to be like, you know, 10 cents or it used to be like, yeah, 10 cents a click. And we could be the number one, uh, you search opportunity zone fund. We're the number one search term 24 hours a day. Now there's five or six people in the space. It costs like 40 cents a click because everybody caught on to that trend, but we were one of the first ones to do it. We brought in a full sales and marketing team here in Silicon Valley. Uh, our whole team used to work at tech companies and tech has been doing this, you know, for quite some time. Yeah. So to bring this into a, a real estate equity fund space was new for real estate equity, but uh, not new for the overall market, but it was very successful for us, especially in the beginning. You know, what's really interesting about that, Eric is, you know, I come from a marketing background and there's the two ends of the spectrum. You have direct marketing and you have branding. And, and in fin the financial world, you know, the direct marketing is very transactional. You, you basically, you have to have a funnel. You put a dollar in, you need to get a dollar 10 back, right? And you just made 10 cents profit. Plus you have enough cash to reinvest, buy more traffic, put it back into the funnel. That's mm -hmm. how direct marketing works, right? And then there's this whole other side, which is branding, which is you look at the most valuable brands in the world, Coca-Cola, Louis Vuitton, you know, these big, giant companies and their brand names are worth billions. And as a marketer, I respect both. I respect both ends of those spectrum. But to me, sometimes the 506B transactional broker dealer model feels to me like direct marketing. Like we have product, we're going to sell the product. There's going to be whatever, six, 8% you know, fee that you pay, yada, yada, yada. Whereas what you've done you 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 do you know you do do the marketing 
But the process of that forces you to create the brand, tell the story. And so now, regardless of your current fund, think about the equity that you've built just in the process of creating the brand, telling that story over and over through all these marketing channels. To me, that ends up building tremendously more value. And, and the sponsors that do this, and Urban Cattles is definitely one of the top few that I even talk, like I even use literally, I've used your company as an example to others talking about this concept. The companies that are doing this at the sponsor level, to me, are just building way more enterprise value because they're building that brand and that story that sits above any one product. It does give us that advantage. You're right. And another thing that you know really helps us out is ground up development in general is a news story. Yeah. Everybody likes to read about new buildings getting built. So every time one of our projects submits an application, gets an approval, gets building permits, starts construction, is halfway done, we're getting these news articles. We've been in the local newspapers and even some of the national ones over 250 times in the last five years. There was a point in time in 2021 when we were in the Silicon Valley Business Journal every other week for a year straight. Now that type of branding is something you can't buy. I mean, if I purchased advertising in that uh, in the Silicon Valley Business Journal, nobody's gonna read my advertising, but when they write articles that are legit articles, yeah. you know, about your progress and what you're doing, people read that. And we do see that in our organic traffic that comes in through our marketing channels and eventually ends up uh, leading us to further fundraising. Yeah. They call that earned media, right? The, the whole, the PR industry calls that earned media. And I do, it's, it's so funny. I mean, cause it even relates to the show, the alternative investment podcast, because we'll interview sponsors and a lot of the folks in our industry are more B2B. Some of them, you know, only sell through broker dealers it can tend to be more insular and almost a desire to like kind of hide from the spotlight or to want to be under the radar. Well, you but know, per SEC regulations, if you're doing business through broker dealers and you have FINRA as your jurisdiction, yeah. uh, there's a very limited amount of marketing you can do. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Which is ultimately limiting and, and goes back to that, the brand equity and, and everything that you're talking about. But I, I want to shift gears. So the urban catalyst you know, let's talk about the brand. In my mind, I guess I'll talk about your branding, how it's had an effect on me. When I hear Urban Catalyst, when I think Silicon Valley real estate, like those, it's like a tissue Kleenex in my mind, at least, especially in the OZ world. So, but when a lot of people think about California real estate, though, they're thinking doom and gloom. Like when I'm thinking about Cal the state of California, I'm thinking, you know, budgetary craziness, the just insane political pension crisis, budgets, all this stuff. But but then at the same time, I have to admit, I'm also thinking, well, the richest, most powerful companies in the world are headquartered in Silicon Valley, and they also tend to be incubated in Silicon Valley. So what are people's misconceptions, I guess, about this, this area of the world, this region? Sure. And, and you know what I'm going to talk about? I'm going to talk about the year 2021 here in California and Silicon Valley. So uh, most recently, we just, if, if California was its own country, we just became the fourth largest economy in the world. We just took over Germany. So that's kind of the type of economic capital that we bring to the world stage. And a lot of that is Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. um, Silicon Valley in 2021 probably had its best year in history. 
they had more companies go public than any year going all the way back to the dot-com craziness. They had more venture capital funding by dollar amount and by percentage versus the rest of the world than any year in history. One of my favorite stats, uh, the city of Menlo Park, which has 45,000 people, had more venture capital funding than the entire state of Texas. So it kind of you know, puts it in perspective. Uh, the companies here, yeah, I mean, having the headquarters of Meta, Google, and Apple, that, that goes a long way. Huge companies. The other thing that people think about a lot is they think about uh, everybody's leaving California. Haven't you heard everybody's moving to Texas and Montana? Well, that Austin, is not- Nashville is so hot right now, right? I know. Well, I mean, that's not really <laughs> a news story, right? I mean, that's been going on for a long time. People have left yeah. California. Uh, our population has gone up for over a hundred years straight. We had like a little blip in 2020 and 2021 where we lost like less than half a percent of our population. And so far this year, we're already back on track. People don't take into account the amount of people from other countries that moved to California. Mm. That's, that's kind of the, you see all the people that live in California moving out because they can't afford to live here. And you see the people from other countries that want to live in the United States. They want to live in California because it's an amazing place from the weather all the way to the economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you're uh, emigrating, you know, some places in the world, if you're like, should I emigrate to London or Vancouver or California? It's like, oh, California is the value play, I guess, compared to some places in the world. Yeah. California, a lot of people like California for a lot of reasons. Sometimes politics aren't the reasons, although some people <laughs> love the politics and think yeah. it's the greatest. Our budget, we actually have a budget surplus this year, which is uh, nice. Uh, see, see, Erica, just let me put a pin in that. This is the thing, and it gets me. I fall into this trap. It's like you hear about the crazy stuff going on in California. You're almost rooting for it to fail. But at the same time, as an investor, you don't invest based on your politics. You invest where the best financial opportunity is, right? That's absolutely right. And if you look at the real estate over the last 50 years here in California, it's been amazing for a Mm -hmm. lot of folks. Uh, you still have to do the right things, but it's nice to have a strong history of positive market trends. Uh, the SEC also likes me to say past performance is not an indicator of future success. Yeah, that's fair. You know, when talking about this high-end real, I, I, w- I would call it high-end, if not ultra high-end real estate. I mean, just, you know, thinking of like Manhattan, London, Vancouver, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, all these places. It reminds me trip down memory lane back in what 2004 when google did their ipo and the uh, the pre ipo price was like 85 bucks or something and the day that ipo i think it went up to like 100 bucks a share and at that time i remember there being this uh conversation going on like this is way overpriced you know like the old school you know warren buffett's value investors they wouldn't touch this with a 100 foot pole you're a sucker if you buy it. look how expensive multiple to revenue look how expensive it is but it was one of those things where price is what you pay value is what you get it's like yeah it's expensive for a reason because the future growth of google which is their business model is like an atm machine right they sell clicks for three dollars a click i mean talk about a good business model it ended up in hindsight being the deal of the century being super cheap so it's i think it's one of those kind of mental things sometimes people have trouble getting over Something seems really expensive, but then you fast like think about what was San Francisco real estate in 1995, 
right? Probably seemed expensive then. It probably seemed expensive. I, I moved. I moved to San Francisco in uh, 2002 from uh, Seattle, where I went to college, and I, all I could hear is, "It's the most expensive place. You can't afford an apartment. It's so expensive." And looking back, it's so cheap. It's like a quarter of what it is now. <laughs> that, well, I mean, that's the that's the principle, right? Is it? Price you know, is what you pay, quality is what you get. In, interesting statistics that just came out about San Jose. I mean, obviously, we have a housing crisis here in California. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's really true here in Silicon Valley where we've created six jobs for every housing unit that we've built for over 30 years straight. Uh, our population grows exactly as fast as we build new housing, and we don't build new housing fast because of the regulatory environment here in California. Right. Uh, but San Jose just got ranked the most expensive big city to live in in the United States and the fourth most expensive big city to live in in the entire world. Our median home price is now between 1.6 and 1.7 million. So was I, wait, I was wrong when I was comparing it to Vancouver. You're telling me maybe it is as expensive or more expensive than Vancouver. It's the most expensive place around. It is so expensive here. It's, It's absolutely unreal when it comes to housing. And this is horrible for our economy. In fact, you know, as a developer, one of the things that really gets us is construction costs. And construction costs here are really driven by labor. And I'm not talking like the difference between union labor and non-union labor. I'm just talking about labor in general. Mm-hmm. We don't have enough people that can afford to live here that build buildings. So when we get busy, there just aren't enough people to build the buildings. And that's what drives up the cost. And you kind of go, this is crazy. We can't even build buildings because the cost is too high because nobody can live here to build the buildings. So it's just like a very downward spiral with that. Well, the fact, let's shift to the OZ fund or multiple funds. I mean, one of the cool things, going back to your vision, the big, bold vision, is in California, it's really hard to build, right? But you know, you've talked about, you know, you you obviously know what you're doing, ground up construction. The fact that this is even being built on one level is kind of incredible, right? So talk about the OZ fund and the projects in it. Yeah, the the fact that, you know, we have eight projects between our two funds and we have approvals for all of those projects. When we started the process, we didn't have approvals. They were just pieces of land. Mm -hmm. You know, they had structures on them and that we went eight for eight with exactly what we wanted to build, exactly what we thought we could build was approved by the city. There's no major changes. A lot of that is a testament to the city of San Jose. And I do want to give them their props because uh, their planning and economic development department is top notch. And they really understand urban development and what a city should be and how to facilitate that. But still, so read, in between, read in between the lines, even if the state of California is kind of anti-development or whatever, the local government in San Jose is not not that way. That is correct. Well, at least in downtown San Jose. In downtown San Jose, it's where all the infrastructure is, it's where all the transit is. It's If you're going to do high-density development, where are you going to do it? Here is the place for them. And they know that. And they're good at it. They're maybe the best place in all of the Bay Area to do it. Although there are a couple of other little spots, some places in Oakland, some places in the city of Fremont. Uh, where they're very pro-development, but a lot of the cities are very anti-development. The city of Cupertino has been notoriously anti-development. They've had several uh, big projects that have had referendums and huge political battles. Half their city council got you know, uh, <laughs> taken out in the last election because of just the awfulness going on there. But I mean, Cupertino, 
in the city of Cupertino, Apple has 85% of the office space in the entire city. You would think that they could build some housing for those employees, but that's not what's happening, right? Um, to have those types of approvals, that in California is the, I'll call it the largest development risk. I mean, I always think as a professional developer, everybody out there that owns a piece of property is always thinking, well, what can I build on here? Whether it's your house, oh, I could do an addition on my house. <laughs> Or you got some, you know, they'll think, oh, I could put an extra unit back there. I can, yeah. I can expand my industrial property by 500 square feet this way, all the way up to people that are building giant buildings. So being able to be a professional and understand how to design buildings is also one of the keys to doing ground up development. You have to be able to build cost effective buildings. And this is easier said than done. We see a lot of folks who have entitled big projects here in San Jose. Uh, they were the they are the property owner. They hired an architect and then they went and they processed plans for the city. And you go and when the plans come out and they get their approvals, you go, well, that was a big waste of time. They designed a building that you can't build. Cost a hundred percent more than my building to build because they didn't understand how the structural system needs to facilitate the plumbing and the mechanical system and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's kind of a shame. My philosophy has always been and is still to this day. When you start your project, you start that first design, you have your kickoff meeting, you have to grab your architect and you got to get your general contractor. Your <laughs> architect has to have the vision. They yeah. want to build the Taj Mahal. They want to get you know awards for the beauty of their projects to be the greenest, the best building ever built. And the general contractor is going to want to build you know, something equivalent to 1960s Soviet housing. <laughs> and then... Every single meeting throughout the whole process, they need to fight each other in that meeting. And what you end up with is a beautiful building, absolutely functional, but at the same time, it's cost-effective to build. And that's our true value add when it comes to development. Yeah, and absolutely, because the, the you know bringing it back to entrepreneurship, the perfect building that never gets built, it's not really much of a building, right? It's not, and and back to the the housing shortage or just the 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 crisis, which is also an opportunity for investors with development is, you know, we need to get houses built. We need to get housing units built. So, you know, getting the thing actually launched, that's the name of the ball game. You know, it's recent statistic came out here in Silicon Valley. That's just so eye-opening. Uh, if we wanted to have for housing supply to equal demand, we'd have to build around 150,000 housing units. That would say stop our prices from just going through the roof. Mm -hmm. And we've never built more than 5,000 in a single year in history. So that's how far behind we are. And for all the folks out there saying, well, build more below market rate housing or build you know, all housing, uh, we're not even putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound, either with below market rate or market rate. We just can't build enough, period. Mm -hmm. The state is taking some initiative to take power away from local land use authority from city councils uh, because the city councils aren't doing what they're supposed to do, which is approve housing. It makes a lot of sense. Actually, one of the state senators, uh, Scott Wiener, said it best. He said, if you're a small town city council member uh, and you approve housing, you're walking the political plank because you won't get reelected because you're being elected by 100 people swing. And those 100 people are going to vote for your opponent because you approved housing. Mm. Politicians the two things they want to get reelected or to get elected to a higher political office. 
Yeah. So they can't, they can't, they can't approve housing. If they do, they don't get that. And so the state is coming in and doing some stuff, although call it somewhat ineffective. It's not, it's not creating a huge dent in the problem, but over time it's slowly working and maybe it will over the next like 25 years. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That. Okay. You know what? I'm not going to get into all the political stuff because I, I want to <laughs> we'll be here all day. I, I do feel like you've kind of almost undersold though the opportunity zone fund going back to the vision. I mean, we've barely even talked about what you're actually building oh, in the fund. Sure. So our current offering is our opportunity zone fund too. We have four projects in it. Um, first project echo. It's about 400 units of multifamily. It's a high rise. Right next door to that, our second project is Icon. Icon's a 500,000 square foot office building. Then we also have the Keystone Hotel. It's a Marriott Town Place Suites, 172 keys. And then our final project, the fourth one, is called Gifford Place. And it is a senior living facility. And even more specifically, it's assisted living and memory care. So those are the four projects. We like having a diversified portfolio of projects. Uh, in fact, our Keystone Hotel is already under construction, so that's uh, pretty exciting. The diversification is great. You know, when we started the fund, office was the hottest thing in the world. Now office has become, especially in the newspaper, not quite as popular. Uh, it's nice to have a diversification of product types just for this exact reason, right? And, well, and, and Eric, you know, run. yes, sorry to interrupt, but on the office, I mean, I think it needs to be said. This is, is it across the street or next door to the Googleplex? I mean, that, that's like a, it's not just an office, right? Like we're building an, a random office <laughs> building somewhere. I mean, this is going to be one of the premier office buildings in the area, correct? It, it absolutely is going to be. It, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. It's right next to the future BART station, just making it the epitome of transit-oriented development. It's on Santa Clara Street, which is kind of the main drag of the central business district here in downtown San Jose. And it's about six blocks from Google's future. We call it their mega campus. They haven't quite named it yet. <laughs> the They're Death calling Star. themselves Downtown West, which Downtown West is great. So they get they get half of downtown, their Downtown West, or they call it just the whole region? Well, the, the core of downtown, the historic downtown San Jose is on the east side of the 87 freeway. Okay. And Google, over the last five years, has purchased 80 acres of property on the west side of the freeway. Uh, they almost have bought everything west of the freeway. Uh, they're planning on building 7 million square feet of office and 6,000 residential units. Uh, at build out, it'll be their largest campus on earth. It's a 10-year, $19 billion build out, and they started construction last year. Only $19 billion. They couldn't. Yeah, it's actually a fantastic project and it's really integrating itself into downtown very nicely the way that they've designed it. Google has really done, call it, it's like an urban planner's dream, what mm -hmm. Google decided to do with this campus. And we love it. We have three projects that are literally hundreds of yards away from it. Our office is six blocks away from it. So uh, a lot of, a lot of real positive synergy with what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And kind of, as I mentioned, other developers have really come into downtown as well. They have lots of really great projects. We know almost all the developers, probably 10 active developers in downtown. Uh, we have periodic meetings with each other and we root each other on. You'd think it's competition, but it's not competition. It's we all know that we're building this synergy for a greater downtown San Jose and that if 
they build a project and I build a project, both of our projects will be worth Absolutely. You know, as investment theses, maybe it's not a complicated thesis, but, but a good thesis doesn't need to be complicated. Makes me think of like building in the, the Washington, D.C. area or Arlington, Virginia, like anybody building around there. I'm like, I would not bet against that. I wouldn't bet against all of the money in that area and all of the growth. Unfortunately, sometimes in that area, same thing as investment theses go, building near Google's largest headquarters on earth, like that's a pretty strong thesis already, just that right there. It is, and you know, it's very interesting to us too that we're one of the only active opportunity zone funds here in Silicon Valley. I would have thought that a lot of these other groups would have utilized the opportunity zone program. But what I found is a lot of the other groups, you know, some of them are, you know, very wealthy individuals that self-fund a lot of their big projects. Mm-hmm. Other ones raise money from, you know, the Texas Teachers Pension Fund. And they raise money a billion dollars a clip. And to them, they don't need to raise money from individual investors in the retail right. chain. Right. So uh, that leaves us. And because we're one of the only shops here doing it, uh, investors across the country understand the Silicon Valley market, the power of it, and they get over their you know feelings towards California politically. And <laughs> they understand that it's a good business deal. And so that's, that's what we're finding. And that's, you know, we have almost 800 investors between our two funds now, our, our two opportunity zone funds. And that's uh, kind of a testament to what we do here. Well, last thing on the opportunity zone fund. So I, I know that the office, it is going to be a premier office building in the area and, and frankly, one of the premier cities, especially in technology in the world, but it's still office, right? Well, is office... Is office untouchable? I mean, I think a lot of investors, they hear office and they're just like, oh, move on, brain shut off. They don't even uh, want to hear about it. You are, you are saying exactly what has been happening, especially in the headlines. Uh, headlines have been bashing office hard. You know, Silicon Valley is an interesting place, right? Even during COVID, we probably had the best office market in the country. Hmm. We saw more transactions of existing office space than really we'd ever seen before. And they were selling for these record prices. We became the safe haven for big equity groups that had money to place in office. They put it here. And that happened all the way through 2021. We saw that slow down to kind of a more normalized level. But what we've seen is, you know, our rents have gone down a little, but not a lot. Our vacancy rate hasn't has gone up a little, but it hasn't gone up a lot. Uh, we still see big tech companies taking big leases. And well, and, and Eric, if I could, sorry, I was just going to, I was just thinking, I think maybe it took a year or two for some of these companies to figure out not every worker is super productive at home. Some are. So I just, I don't see offices going away. You know, I don't see it as going away. It's probably not going to go back to exactly what it was before. Mm-hmm. We have the, we're lagging the rest of the country and return to office. And so while a lot of places, especially in Texas, they're almost back to pre-pandemic levels, we're only like 60, 70% of the way there. So we're not seeing that big flux yet. And a lot of that's because here in Silicon Valley, the company's hired so many people in 2021. I mean, they hired hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, They're cannibalizing each other. And tech workers got to write their own ticket. And if they wanted to work from home, they were going to work from home. What we're seeing now, especially with the layoffs that have been occurring, is a lot of people are going back into the office because they don't want to lose their jobs. And the employers have, you know, they've gotten more power. 
we're still not back in five days a week, but I'll tell you, traffic is just about as bad as it was uh, pre-pandemic. But I'm going to tell you some interesting things because I get a lot of comments about the layoffs themselves. I mean, if you read even our business journal right now, it says every other article is uh, Zoom cuts, you know, 13% of their workforce. Facebook cuts 12,000 people on and on and on. You know, I think the big companies here have only laid off like 5% of the total amount of folks that they hired during the pandemic. Wow. That's kind of a, just to show you. Also, interesting statistic, you know, 1.6 million people work here in Silicon Valley. Uh, during the dot-com, which was a real downturn, they fired in layoffs around 300,000 people. So far here in the Valley, we've laid off about 12,000. So not even like a blip on the radar. In fact, our unemployment rate is now at 2%. It, six months ago, it was at 2.2%. So we actually have more jobs now than we had six months ago, despite all the layoffs and headlines. Mm -hmm. uh, also, all the big companies that announced layoffs, they're not laying off a whole lot of people here. It seems that they're consolidating here in the Silicon Valley. You know, like, for example, Google laid off 12,000 people. Yeah, they laid off 1,600 people here where they have 18 million square feet of office. Wow. So almost nobody. Uh, Microsoft laid off 10,000 people. They laid off 46 people here. Uh, Meta laid off 11,000. They have their headquarters here. They have about 6 million square feet of office here. Uh, of that 11,000, it's 2,500 were here. And that was kind of the largest one. Uh, Apple hasn't laid anybody off. In fact, Apple has just leased another... Uh, 1.6 million square feet of space uh, wow. just recently here in Sunnyvale. And you kind of go, so where are all these like real layoffs happening? It's not really a thing that's going on. I mean, I guess it is happening, mm -hmm. but in Silicon Valley, we're not, we're not really feeling it. I guess I'd put it that well, way. Well, the, lab the labor market is still very tight. And I mean, I have the impression, you know, armchair theorist here, but I have the impression it's exactly what you said. It's companies that are consolidating almost using economic disruption as a pretext, increase profit margins a little, like that's okay. They're companies, they're, they're doing what they want to do, but we're not really seeing the economy go into this depression or anything. And I think a lot of company, you know, they watch their cash flow in real time. So I think it's kind of like the, the, the recession in a way, I think it's been way over exaggerated almost that everyone's rooting for a recession, you know? It, 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 I, I think you're exactly right. To me, what it seems like is the companies went a little bit too wild hiring people during the pandemic. And now they're looking, okay, well, we can get rid of our bottom 10% and call it, you know, layoffs because of the economy and then we won't yep. get sued. <laughs> that's it, really exactly. what's going on. Yep, yep. That's, uh, I think that's 100% right. So I know I want to respect your time. I know we're running short on time, but I did want to ask you about the new DST. So, you let us actually at AltsDB, you gave us uh, the ability to launch this story. So we are excited to announce it. But, you know, I'm thinking Urban Catalyst, you're known for OZs, you're known for Silicon Valley real estate. This is something different. So, how does, how, I guess, how does the DST fit into the brand or vision or, or what is the vision with the DST product? It, I'm so glad you asked. You know, we're really excited to launch our DST. It's an industrial product in Dallas, Texas. Um, here at Urban Catalyst, you know, we've been real estate folks for a long time. We've owned and managed a ton of buildings for the companies we've worked for throughout history, as well as our personal portfolios. Uh, 
we have marketed ourselves over the last couple of years really as an opportunity zone fund focused on ground development, San Jose all day. And when we said, oh, we're going to do this other type of product, because it makes a lot of sense to us. It's real estate. It's a quality asset, has a lower risk profile. It's you know income producing property that's existing versus ground development. Ground development has more risk in general, has higher returns. Mm-hmm. Uh, existing stabilized asset, lower risk, lower returns. So for us, it was a very simple uh, transition. And we wanted to expand our fund platform to provide more uh, more opportunities for our investors. Delaware Statutory Trust, I mean, it fits right in our wheelhouse. Tax-advantaged real estate. That is what we do here at Urban Cows. We raise funds for tax-advantaged real estate. We raise funds for properties that we can control. And so that's what we did here with our DST. We launched into the market. You raise money from individual investors. We're built to raise money from individual investors, both in our direct channel and through, uh, you know, wealth managers. So, overall, it was a perfect transition for us, and we're really excited to have it out there. It took us a long time uh, to put it together because we wanted to make sure that we could just bring the most quality property to the market as our first one so that folks could see that the same type of quality and excellence that we put into our opportunity zone funds, we put that into our Delaware statutory trust as well. Yeah. I mean, I guess as an, as an outsider, you know, you all do have that brand name and you have that, you know, the, the 506 C direct investor base and, and just awareness of urban catalyst. So that makes sense. Expanding to me, one theme, one consistent theme is these geographic locations that are like boom towns. Like, I don't know what other way to put it. Just like really solid underlying long-term demographic economic growth. It kind of goes back to what I said about Google and their IPO. It's just like, if you're a long-term thinker and you, you kind of can fast forward and you say, well, look at the growth that's happening every year. Imagine what this real estate, this piece of dirt is going to be worth in 10 years, in 20 years. To me, that's kind of a theme with with your thinking. I'm glad you said that. We are always looking at the overall markets and as far as which markets are great. When it came to our Delaware Statutory Trust, you know, the first thing that we had to determine when we created this program was which asset class were we going to target. Mm -hmm. The two most common types of DSTs, apartments and industrial. DSTs, you know, you need to have rent growth associated with them, or then at the end of a certain period of time, you won't be able to sell the asset for what you sold the DST for, because there are additional costs associated with selling the DST, you know, creating the structure around it and all of those types of things. So we didn't want to just go into an apartment deal where you think, okay, well, the market will go up over the next few years and it'll be fine. We wanted to go into a net lease environment where we could have built-in rent increases into our leases. And so that's what we found here with this property that we have. We have a 10-year lease, 3% built-in rent increases so that we can show in a contract with a quality tenant that 10 years from now, we will have a value that is similar to the value that we're selling the DST for now. And that is an exit strategy for our investors. So that was kind of our our number one goal from the very get-go. And industrial properties, great. Other type of net lease properties, you got retail, you got... Uh, he got office office, obviously not the hottest thing retail, you know, Amazon has taken out like 15% of all retail over the last 15 years. Well, isn't industrial it's, it reminds me of multifamily. Isn't it like kind of an area where the, the supply and demand mismatches so, so severe. 
It, it is. And what we're seeing in the Dallas Fort Worth metro area right now, I mean, not only has the population increased by 20% over the last 10 years, but it's the second largest industrial market in the country. Mm. And there's lots of new industrial development. Uh, that development's really on the outskirts of Dallas and Fort Worth. This property is in the city of Dallas, right in between Dallas and Fort Worth. It is a fantastic location. Uh, two things that we had were must-haves for us in the acquisition of this property. One was we needed to be in a major metropolitan area. Uh, number two was we needed to be near a major freight cargo airport, and the Dallas-Fort Worth airport is that. So we hit both of those with this property. Um, at the same time, we wanted to be in a market where we've seen historically strong rent growth. Uh, in our submarket, we've seen rents go up 14% year over year for industrial. So it was really great that you can have your lease and you can say, well, I've got it built into the lease that the rents are going to increase 30% over 10 years. But also knowing that by the time you get to the end of 10 years, your lease is probably under the market rents because rents have gone up that much over 10 years. I like to say we like to do business based on a business plan, not on speculation. And that's what we do. But it is nice to have a little speculation in your back pocket that uh, it's going to be a strong rental growth in the market itself over time as well. Exactly. You, it's kind of like you're underwriting conservatively, you know, like planning to be conservative with that. But then there's built in upside. Right? That's absolutely so, right. Yeah. Eric, you know, I, I know we're running out of time. I just want to thank you so much for coming on, sharing your insights. I mean, the, the Silicon Valley story, it never really gets old. I think it, it, it just reminds me so much of that Google IPO and, and speaking of Google, right? Silicon Valley. But I just love your big, bold vision. I mean, honestly, as, as an entrepreneur, I just find that inspiring to think big, think bold. It's It's awesome. Well, I appreciate that. We want to do what's right for here in San Jose and what's right for our investors. And a big, bold vision was the plan. And we're just in the process of executing it and making a lot of forward progress in doing so. Where can our audience of advisors and high net worth investors go to learn more about Urban Catalyst? To learn more about Urban Catalyst, please visit us at urbancatalyst.com. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Eric. Hey, thank you, Andy, for having me. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.